0: Hi, it's ragu back with mind rolling and today uh, i've got a wonderful guest we're just meeting i say that with everybody because i only just meet them when i'm doing a podcast for the most part it's it's that's it's a great way to meet people uh and uh jamal yogis yogi yogis
1: it's Yogis, but we can go Yogis. I like Yogi Yogis, since, yeah. <laughs> For the podcast. Yeah, yeah.
0: And, and if you think, like, I might have thought, who calls themselves Yogis, you know, uh, like when I first uh, heard of him, uh, heard of Jamal? And uh, the reality is it's his real name, okay? So anybody who's getting all snickety about that, <laughs> forget about it.
1: Right, right. Yogis, plural, man, you botched that one. Yeah, yeah it's Lithuanian. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. It's Lithuanian. uh, Yogis is. uh, But, you know, they do say Lithuanian is the is one of the closest to Sanskrit of Mm -hmm. the European languages. So who knows? You know, maybe there's some yogis (laughs) in our lineage way back.
0: So uh Jamal wrote a bo- he's written several books. This is his third book I believe. All Our Waves Are Water Stumbling Toward Enlightenment and the Perfect Ride and uh what's fun for me about this and it's a, it's a memoir book. Uh memoir-ish. Uh Jamal is a surfing aficionado, so he uh there's some great great surf uh, stories in there. As well as uh, stumbling after enlightenment, towards enlightenment, which uh, so I related with all of that, because that's what I did, you know, a long time ago, same kind of a deal. stumbled over to India and just like, what?" <laughs> so uh, it's a wonderful book, and I what I especially like in it is the way that I think a lot of people who listen to this podcast can relate with, you know, you were over there, you were early twenties, right? Maybe you're around 30 now something like
1: that. Uh, yeah, well, uh now the book takes place a little while before now. So I'm 37 now and that it starts off I think I'm 23 up in the Himalayas. Yeah.
0: Uh-huh. Oh. So it's uh yeah, there's a lot of uh, relating that uh, people can do when they first realize that there is a possibility of uh, just simply being happy, happier than You might have been just walking around like, what is this about? Uh, And uh, Jamal, like me, and many people, especially from my era, early 70s, late 60s, early 70s, uh, went off to India because that seems like a prime place to uh, find yourself uh, just because the atmosphere atmosphere there is so conducive to that. But nobody's got to go to India, so don't write me about that, okay? But if you do, I might tell you where to go. Uh, so interestingly enough, uh, s- uh, you spent time with, uh, the Yogi Haridas Baba, who lives in California and came here just after I went to, when I went to India, he was on his way here to America. Do you know his relationship to, uh, Neem Karoli Baba, to us?
1: You know, I'm I'm having trouble remembering. I know there is a connection, but um, but yeah, refresh my memory because I uh, when I lived there with Baba Hari Das, uh, it was before actually this trip to India that where the book starts, and um, I lived there for about six months with him. <clears throat> it was really a, a blessed period of life. Uh, but and I do remember studying some of the lineage, but I can't remember.
0: Yeah, well, he was a uh one could probably call a disciple, although Maharaji Nimkaroli Baba didn't have any disciples. It was all devotees. It was bhakti yoga tradition. Uh, and he didn't teach anything. So, but Haridas was absolutely very close to him. He, he's, he's from Nainital, which is the town that we go to all the time still after all of these years, which is close to the temples that Maharaji built around in the Kamoan. And uh, he built the first Hanuman temple in Nainital of Maharaji actually the, the Hanuman temple in Nainital which is a, a beautiful uh, british uh, resort town where they went to get away from the heat in the summer that's where everybody is now and uh he this is an extraordinary temple and he did an extraordinary job put building this uh, on behalf of i mean w- with Maharaji or on behalf and then he uh, he abruptly left, and there's a whole thing which I don't know the details of what happened, but he abruptly left. He he was Maun, He was silent, Baba, and he left. Yeah. And he went to California and he established a uh, uh, <clears throat> a temple and well, not a temple, a an ashram. I have never been there actually, so I'm not even sure what what it is, but. Certainly, like a retreat place of some sort, right?
1: Like an retreat center. Mm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, it's a cool, really cool mountainside where they did it because Tiknothan has a monastery down the road, and then there's also a Christian mm. uh, monastery up there, so it must be sort of a you know a, a blessed spot. But yeah, now it's coming back to me, and he—that doesn't surprise me that he built an amazing temple because he was. Even in his seventies, uh when I lived there, we were you know, we had to work and we were on rock crew and we were always building building out the temple more and
0: seventies uh,
1: you when he was in the seventies I was there. Oh was when
0: you're 40, seven. ah,
1: and he would be out there, we'd be breaking rocks and doing pretty like uh big time construction. And he was out there lifting and we did it was fun before, we would do rock crew, they called it. He had a class for the young guys and, and girls called uh, Power Pranayama. So we'd go and do a bunch of pranayama, and then we'd go and oh, like do some hard construction uh, work. It was good times. Yeah.
0: Anyhow, not to make any kind of big deal, but there certainly is a major connection between Haridas Baba. In fact, we just had over someone who actually is, was very close to him uh named KK Shah who was one of our mentors in India when we were back there with Ramdas a second time and there were several families that like we were really close to and he was one of them he is one of them and he was close to Haridas baba who who was a clerk in Nainital uh, uh, at that before all of that denuama happened so he knows him in a whole other picture in a whole other life anyhow uh, That's cool. Just so, what what did prompt you though to make this journey to the east?
1: Well, I was already interested in these contemplative traditions. I was a little bit raised uh, in them. That's why how I got the name Jamal. And um, but I didn't start meditating on my own until I ran away from home. I was 16. I'd been getting into some mischief as like high school kids do in the suburbs, and I uh, ran away to Hawaii and thought this would be, you know, my escape from from suffering. But being 16 and alone and without money and learning to surf and getting beat up by the waves uh, was quickly destabilized. And actually, that's when I started meditating on my own. And I ended up living in a Zen monastery after high school. Um, actually first was introduced to Thich Nhat Hanh's teachings and I wanted to be a monk there but I had in France had to come home to California after high school and uh, you know long story short I lived in a Zen monastery for a year here in California Orthodox Chinese monastery Chan and decided not to be a monk and was trying to figure things out like what am I going to do in the world if I'm not going to be a monk ended up uh surfing was always a huge part of my life, too. And so surfing was sort of helping me reintegrate into the world. Um, I went to live with, with uh, Baba Haridas. Thought I might be one of, you know, sort of a live a monk lifestyle up there. But again, I, uh, you know, decided now I got to finish college. My I, I kept having this kind of pull up the mountain and down the mountain, you know, up to the seclusion and then the marketplace as as is common. And then my first love, you know, in college ended up being an Indian American woman, who I call Sati in the book. And so she was sort of like helped me get into the world, transition into a regular job and stuff, because she was very ambitious. And I thought, well, if I'm going to woo this woman, Sati, <laughs> I've got to have, have, a, have a future plan. And, uh, and we were planning right after graduation from college that we'd go live in India for a year and do some service for work. And she would get to know her family, who she was, didn't really know. And a month before the trip, she found someone else. And, you know, our relationship was a little rocky anyway. But long story short, she found someone else. I was reeling You know, just as heartbroken as it was more pain than I ever believed was possible. You know, just heart completely shut down. And I decided to go to India anyway and be strong. And at the time, I thought I was completely removed from my practice, more or less. Like the whole thing had destabilized me. And I was meditating a little bit, but mostly I just wanted to get Sati back. And uh, so I was running around India doing journalism and trying to do things that I thought might win her back in some way and failing miserably at that and just miserable. And eventually, uh, you know, I went up to Baba Haridasa's ashram and I was doing some yoga, but I was just my mind and heart weren't in it. All I cared about was and sati. So I finally made it up to the Himalayas where I'm teaching some tutoring, some Tibetan monks in English and I meet a Tibetan monk who instantly we have this connection and his name's Sonam. And he turns out, uh, we start hanging out and it turns out he's heartbroken too. And he's, he's looking for his family um, who he left in Tibet when he was 11 to ordain with the Dalai Lama and now he's lost touch and he's very sad about this. And he doesn't know if they're alive because the mm-hmm. occupation's gotten more crazy. So, It's basically, you know, that begins uh, the spiritual pilgrimage part of India was finally seeing Sonam grieving his family and how different it was that I was grieving Sati. Because the pivotal moment really came when we were hiking up in the Himalayas as we did almost every day. And we went up high one day to make an offering to some hermits and he picked up some snow and he goes, oh, this snow. India snow, very same, same, Tibet snow, many, many sad, thinking my family. And I put my arm around him and I'm like, I just said, I'm so sorry, you know, about the situation and that you can't find your family. And he looked at me and he had tears in his eyes and he laughed and he goes, Jama, you're funny, This very sad, no problem. (laughs) Uh, And, uh, that very sad no problem became kind of a mantra, and it broke me out of this habit I was I was in of using meditation kind of to skim over emotions. Like mm-hmm. you want to be there, you want to be the guru right away, and it's and, called and, spiritual know. bypass. <clears throat> right, exactly, and I think mm-hmm. being around all those Tibetan deities, where they have you know the wrathful and the and the uh, ethereal, are all. Revered and part of the nature, you know, part of God, and and so that, along with seeing Sonam really live that non-duality, was uh, was was powerful. So,
0: it that's uh, I was struck in the book by how that the, the uh, your relationship with him and his attitude, of course, prompted you to really seriously consider. The reality of what he was, what he was living, uh, and and see how it would apply. And in in fact, there's one part um, you say in the book. I often wondered how Sonam maintained his contentment while also clearly grieving. I felt that I had two settings, upbeat and joyful, usually due to the future feeling bright or guilt and despair, because the future. It seemed difficult. These settings were more like rivals, dark and light, than parts of myself that can that could live in harmony. Um, and the, the idea of being able to uh live on those two planes of consciousness at the same time is is uh, in my experience in life is, the, is one of the deepest keys to being in balance. To, to living on a balanced way on a day to day basis, um, and in fact, Jesus, uh, I, I don't know, how, I mean Ramdas himself at these retreats and things that we do, he brings that up all the time. You know, it's how do you embrace the ten thousand demons and the ten thousand uh, devas? You know, how do you yeah. embrace it in the same moment? And and this is. This takes tremendous work and, and reorienting of your perspective uh, in life, uh, you know, big time. So tell to just tell me about how your perspective started to reorient as a result of the reality of um, these people that, you know, when you're with people like this, they they definitely, that, that vibration enters into you and it does something. There's no doubt, not to mention just in India itself, which is so powerful because of its... Uh, the thousands of years of embodying these these incredible truths.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you 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 bring up the, a great point that it's uh, the key is being around other people who have done it and kind of mirroring them. Because of course, I was familiar with these ideas that you know uh, any you read a few spiritual books and you get familiar with this notion of non-duality that you know. The Buddha nature, whatever you want to call it, is as much in the dishes and the fear as it is in the peak moments of bliss. But meanwhile, you know you're approaching practice in, in a in a more graded way, where you're saying, you know, I'm here and I want to be there, and so I meditate for a little bit, and and I feel a little better, but then I fall back again, and and you're kind of you're 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 judging your meditation just like you're judging, uh, you know any. Thing in the world, you know, whether you like a movie or not, or you know, and so seeing Sonam embody this was one thing, but of course I had to mix it with intense period of practice. So that moment, the this very sad, no problem. I did start repeating that to myself and trying to grieve a little bit more, just letting myself cry. But it didn't. I didn't really. I couldn't really do it. I'd been trained. I think as a a male in America, you know, you're trained not to really feel it's like feelings are, are a sign of weakness or what, what have you. And I'd come from a long lineage of military men and Mm. so forth. So, uh, but anyway, I went in, I I met a friend as I talk about in the book who actually I met, uh, doing yoga teacher training with Baba Hari Das and I hadn't seen her in years and she was this New Yorker, real fast-talking businesswoman, who was just getting into yoga with Baba Hari Das. And at the time, she seemed like she was, you know, a real beginner, and was asking silly questions. Then I, what I perceived as silly questions then. And then I ran into her in India, and she'd been practicing really seriously with Tibetan lamas for years, and she looked amazing, and she was so radiant. And she looked at me and she goes, "You look awful." <laughs> you know, from mm. uh, and it was true. I felt awful. I was still in this pining for Sati business. And she said, "You need to go on retreat." And and so I kind of I took her word for it, and I went on a ten day silent retreat. And yeah,
0: Vipassana retreat, at- right?
1: A Vipassana retreat. It was a Gawinka retreat. It was just, I I almost didn't care what the style was. I just wanted to go into a deep, silent retreat. So I went on a Vipassana retreat, yeah, and, you know, as happens on silent retreat, you want to leave on the first day, and you're thinking, gosh, I have nine more days of this. (laughs) And then, Mm -hmm. but, you know, by day five or six, uh, I got a memory of Sati and started crying, and I think usually I would have used, like, some Chan stoicism to sort of try to cut the motion off. But I was thinking of Sodanam's this very sad, no problem. You know, just feel it, let it come through. I wasn't chasing the sadness, but just letting it be. And it turned out that I cried for about three days on that <laughs> retreat. I mean, literally I would go into do a, do a sit, you do about an hour. And then I would go back to my little hut and just sob. And it was, it wasn't like I was trying to, it was just coming through. And, um,
0: I'm assuming it was more than the gal, though. At the some gal, point, yeah, right.
1: Y- you're right. You you hit the nail on the head. Is uh, first the tears were coming about Sati, and then I was, you know, all of a sudden these memories of my parents' divorce, of you know, a tr- you know, trauma on the playground in second Suffering, grade. It was yeah. like all these layers of the onion, you know, getting peeled away, and. uh so you know, I can only imagine that continues and continues and continues, and spiritual layers of karma. But you know, I was sort of just working through all those emotional layers on that retreat. Mm.
0: Yeah, and uh, there's a, there's a quote that you make of. Well, I love this one. Without a hat, a winter rain falls on me. So what, Basho. We can't get yeah. we can't get with that kind of stuff here in the West. You know, it's just like people. You know what? No, no, it hurts. We have no ability, and and I include myself by the way, no ability to withstand uh, discomfort. I mean, I can withstand a lot of discomfort because I spent a lot of time in India. But the kind of emotional discomfort, for instance, or uh it's things obviously like grief and any all the different kinds of suffering you, you have this quote in here uh y- you call a buddha's first teaching it's sort of translated as life is a bumpy ride uh said, birth is is suffering aging is suffering death is suffering sorrow lamentation Pain, grief, and despair are suffering. Association with the unbeloved is suffering. I love that. Separation from the loved is suffering. And not getting what is wanted is suffering. And uh, we have no way in the West, uh, we are trained in the opposite way to avoid it at all costs. So we have no way to be like your friend Sonam.
1: Yeah, it's, it's true. I mean, we, I think we do have a way and, but we are, it's a reversal of the, of what we're trained in. Yeah. It, I, I'm not sure where that comes from, but it seems like there's, we're trained in the West to think if we work hard enough that at some point the suffering is going to stop. <laughs> it's almost like there's a, there's a goal where if you get that money and get the relationship and get the car, that it'll be good, you know, and, and the suffering. And so you, you, and the right insurance plan and all of it, you know, you, that it's going to be perfect. And I think, I think that's almost, it's that expectation that life at some point will be a happy circumstance rather than, you know, just the opposite perspective, which is, well, of course, the happiness has to be found inside because the circumstances are always going to be bumpy. You know, we live in samsara. This is, you know, the bumpy ride. And, um, and I love, yeah, I just, I love that about traveling to to India or meeting people like Sonam because they're expecting it. It's like, yeah, you know, you, this is part of life. Death is part of life. Sickness is part of life. So uh, you don't shy away from it or wiggle, try to wiggle away from it as much. And, But I think, you know, here we are in the great sort of integration of ideas. And um, you can, you know, it, but I, I'm glad you brought up that it's about being around people who do have that perspective because you can read about it. And you can pra- try to practice it in your meditation, in your life. But as soon as you meet somebody who's living this sort of integrated way, it becomes yep. much easier. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, I'm living proof of that meeting that yeah. I met. But there's another – I was going to – I couldn't – unfortunately, I'll, I'll paraphrase it. But there's a, there was somebody I wanted to bring up to you and quote from uh, – his name is Dilgo Kensi Rinpoche. People who listen to Mind Rolling, they uh, – I refer to him s- quite a bit. Um, mm. He was, do, have you heard of him, Dilgo Kenshi Rinpoche? He, he died in the, the name, 80s.
1: The name rings a bell. Is, was he uh, Was he one of the, uh, in the Galupka tradition, the the Dalai Lama's lineage? Yeah,
0: I, I believe so. And he was a yeah. teacher of the Dalai Lama. Um, he was one of the greatest uh, Rinpo- lamas of the last, you know century. Mm-hmm. i mean he was yeah. uh, as as they say but uh, he he's just tremendous anyhow he um what he said and we're talking about meeting somebody who embodies rather than teaches these uh, what we're we go to meditation courses for and mindfulness courses and chant and pray and meditate that they they live it and they don't there's they don't have to do anything um, and he says if you meet such a being there is no estimation of the value of that meeting. of, of and, and For them, spiritual, uh, a true teacher and a, and a um, siddha or bodhisattva, they're talking about a bodhisattva. Okay. Mm-hmm. Not, to, not somebody who teaches, but someone who is it. Not mm-hmm. somebody who points the way, but someone who is the way. And that mm-hmm. rub-off is, is absolutely incredible. And he says, there isn't anything that's more important in this life if you manage to meet the teacher hmm. the true teacher hmm. and um and in my experience and and knowing with Neem Karoli Baba there wasn't a necessity it has not been and it's current you know people meet him all the time he does obviously through dreams and through day-to-day experience through reading about him through seeing a picture whatever they they have they don't need a body so uh it's not a matter of trying to run off to what I'm trying to say it's run off to India necessarily although there's nothing wrong with going to india as well there are still beings there that are absolutely incredible and you yourself you met somebody who this monk right who was just a regular monk mm-hmm. but yeah but he embodied a a certain um visceral understanding of reality that mm-hmm. uh is not um it, it, That's the beauty of India. There's people like this popping around. That uh, are are living.
1: (laughs) Absolutely, yeah. I I love that quote. Well, and he led me to, you know, there's sort of people, you know, like the Tibetan mandala. You have the these sort of levels of uh, deities and ordinary folk and bodhisattvas with the Buddha at the center. And Sonam was, you, sometimes you meet one of the people on the periphery of the mandala and they lead you toward toward the center. And I, Sonam led me to various people who I only met briefly. Uh, and one of them was this hermit who I write about. When we get involved in the, the story goes on and Sonam develops a, a scheme to go and find his family and um And we go and see this hermit who's meditating in the highlands above uh, Bagsunat, and this is uh, this is pretty pretty common that you know once you have done your study and 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 all your offerings and such you know maybe the last twenty years as a monk you'll go and live in the highlands and just just medit just practice, and we were bringing offerings to to him uh, and and when we got up there i mean it was lit- he he opened the door and was laughing and he said oh you know had no idea we were coming and he said oh of course i, I knew i should make lunch for three and he invited mm-hmm. us in and <laughs> and we had this delicious lunch with a hermit and no language i mean no english <clears throat> and to this day i mean just that hour in this hermit's hut was probably one of the most profound moments of my life and it was nothing he said we were talking about logistics you know and it was just you I felt pinpricks and you know you know, you, you know all the things that you can't describe in language um, and then when he took my hands and this happened to me several times in that area navigating around with Sonam where an older monk would come and grab me by the hands, and this was this hermit was one, and another guy just randomly did it, a, a, a lama or a Rinpoche, and they just take your hands and and almost looked like they were gonna cry, and just you know say some mantras or just say a few words, and that I couldn't understand, and it was like that transference whatever happened was worth all the all the meditation you know Mm -hmm. of the retreat Mm. because you saw what was possible you saw it in their eyes and you felt it and then there was of course you know we are more like waves than than solid stone or something so whatever is happening between you in that exchange is 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 profound Mm. so yeah it's very fortunate to to be there at all and i think you kind of you get into it. it's like getting, it's like getting in the river, you know, you meet one person like Sanam and then he, he teaches you a few things and then, but then you're in the river and, and so you, you know, and there's all kinds of people who are of a similar mind sort of in that stream. And, and, uh, yeah, I love that you're, I love just talking about it. Cause I can kind of, you know, it's a, it's like, it's in the past, but that frame of mind that can happen in the himalayas it's like it's always there yeah. <laughs> and yeah you can yeah. kind of tap into it yeah <clears throat> yeah what have been your i'm curious because you've been doing this much longer what have your did you uh been your sort of moments like that in you know meeting teachers i'm sure there have been many but
0: well uh, no i'm i mean there hasn't well i have met you know a lot of different teachers babas yogis swamis and all of it cuz it's been such a long period but, but there was no one there has n- nobody like neem karoli i mean absolutely yeah. you know he is consider you know he's considered in india a siddha not a saint you know there's like right. for every you know thousand saints there's maybe a siddha you know this is a well you were in india so they consider uh shirdi you've seen shirdi sai baba uh, he's everywhere in india right the yeah, yeah sh- s- sure yeah so he is um he's probably considered the uh, the most transparent um, I- uh, example of of a siddha like he was not There was no attachment to anything. There was nothing... They lived in non-duality in a body, which is rare, and only through the love of the devotees. And they don't teach except by their being. They don't write books. They don't give lectures or anything like that. So Maharaji was very much that. And um, Mm -hmm. I mean, your story of the hermit saying, oh, you've come? Oh, I'm glad I cooked for three. (laughs) Yeah. yeah so there's a famous story with ramdas getting on a bus going out of vipassana course and with 27 people and they were on their way to delhi and they stopped they were going through allahabad and they and somebody said oh let's go to where the uh, ganges meets the, the ganga and the uh, yamuna and Saraswati meet together it's where the big melas are kum and uh, big gatherings and uh he said, he's thinking to himself, shit, no, I want to go get an ice cream in Delhi. I've been in this meditation <laughs> course. It's like, i got to have a bed. Uh, you know, forget about it. But there was a, at the same time, he thought, well, we should, you know, Ram Dass wanted to do the righteous thing, do something spiritual. So somebody said, make a left. And he made the left. And, uh, you know, he made that decision because it was, he got, he hired the bus. And they went down there and someone said, oh, let's go to a Hanuman temple. There's Hanuman in, in the Mela, and uh, they went there, and as they got there, Maharaji arrived. At that, They hadn't been able to find him for uh, like months, four months. They couldn't find him in India, so they had done this meditation course, and they arrived there, and there he is, and he says, follow me back. Of course, they all freak out that he's there with this oh, devotee, yeah. and they go to the devotee's house, whose name was Dada Mukherjee, great, uh, one of our mentors. And his wife comes out and he tells uh, she tells Ramdas, oh, Maharaji woke us up at six o'clock in the morning and said you 're going to have twenty eight guests for dinner for lunch. prepare
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> same kind of you know these things, and they do yeah. they point to okay, i mean that 's obviously uh, once you 're dipped into whatever it is that 's the one, however you want to call whatever it is is." Um it's all accessible and so that's not you know the big deal is the unconditional love and that's you know you were approached by somebody who looks at you like you know you're the last person on earth Mm -hmm. and and they they're holding you in that moment that's Mm -hmm. something that as you just said never leaves never leaves you know
1: yeah that's very true and uh yeah, it's it's uh and it's so different than what these sort of just de stress like mindfulness courses are that, you know, I think are are the rage now in different, you know, corporate settings and whatnot, you can get like meditations being taught is just sort of take the edge off, get a little bit better at work, be more productive. <laughs> yeah. Which is all all good. I mean, I, I think it's all good. If you dip a toe, you know, it can all of a sudden reveal all sorts of other aspects. But when you see somebody who has this look of unconditional love in their eyes for a stranger yeah. and that they've developed that, yeah. that heart, it's, um, you just see what's possible. And yeah, I think it's, mo- it. it's motivate It's motivational yeah. because it's not easy to do the practice and it's, and you know, you, it's easier just to watch TV and, you know, yeah. go, go get the money or whatever. But, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, uh, so yeah, it's, for the it's, it is for, it is the most important thing, I think is being able to see the potential yeah. in and a teacher's is, eyes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, mm-hmm.
0: that's what it is. I mean, not to mention, of course, uh, in, in, Our case, and I a case of meaning the people that were there, Krishna Das, you know, I don't know if you know, maybe you know Mm -hmm. Krishna Das, is most people. Sure, yeah. And Ram Das and myself, and there's people like uh, Larry, Dr. Larry Brilliant, who helped uh, suppress uh, or get rid of small parks in the East. Uh, um, Danny Goldman, who's, uh, you know, people who really uh, were given a mission when they came back without being given anything. Although with Larry Brilliant's case, uh, that's a wonderful book called, uh, by the way, Sometimes Brilliant, you might like it. Mm. And you out there Mm. listening right now, Sometimes Brilliant, Larry Brilliant, Uh, it's a a wonderful book that really describes that whole thing around him getting to India and then um, being told by Maharaji, go to UN and you be part of getting rid of smallpox. Meaning he was a long-haired hippie doctor that couldn't Mm. get arrested at the UN. It was a great story.
1: Uh, oh right, I'm recalling this now. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he worked for, for Google and
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Yeah yeah, 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 of course. Exactly. Yeah. So so uh you know, certainly um, you know, there's some real um uh, manifestations of of it that he physical manifestations in terms of what he did with people that their whole lives were were changed and put into a direction that was really a, a, you know has been of, of service for sure Ramdas being the the biggest uh, example of that but the 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 idea that the, you look at the also the big also is what you said seeing the potential of of the uh, of this uh, being is a human being still you know mm-hmm. obviously mm-hmm. has karma of you know Eons mm-hmm. to to be born like this, because uh, you know they. It's not a matter of being taught in this lifetime, and that's why I love. So the seeing the potential is really important, and that's why I love what His Holiness the Dalai Lama represents th- these days mm-hmm. I- in the world. You know, my mm-hmm. only religion is kindness, you know? mm-hmm. and it's about. Uh, he he talks a lot about secular ethics and so on. Um, I mean, there's this. Th- so this Dilgo Kensi Rinpoche. Let me just share one little thing um he's just talking about um you know people go out and teach the dharma to hundreds of thousands of students and do thousands of practices and meritorious acts but if self-clinging is still your mind's most firmly rooted theme your activity will never be that of a bodhisattva it will never be that of uh, real open-heartedness. To be a, a, a bodhisattva and carry out a bodhisattva's activity, you must uproot all trace of selfishness from within. That's the, mm-hmm. To me, that's the place to start. with. The, you don't have to have a mm-hmm. big thing around enlightenment and, and being this, that, being anything. But, mm-hmm. but really dealing... I mean, we, we see our selfishness on a day-to-day basis, do we not? I mean, it's amazing and um so I, I i just uh that's why there's a gr- lot of wonderful passages in in the book where you are you know very very honest with where you're at and uh, uh and i think in the reading of that i mean you're pointing to to uh to something that i think is really Really great for people to relate with. I thought you were a little younger, but you know you're really old at 37. <laughs>
1: well, so. I, I'm I'm writing about a period where I'm younger because I thought the stories in from that period would be, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, sometimes having a little adventure tale to go along with <laughs> the uh, the the moment allows people to relate, and I was able to travel a lot in that time of life. So, um, but uh I think you're right. I mean going back to your quote that that's the place to start and it's one of the reasons I come back to, you know, I think I could be making metaphors about golf or baseball or cooking just as much as I could surfing, but there is one thing that uh, going back to living sort of in touch with the divine in you know the midst of the madness of, of, uh, everyday life is that the wave metaphor is really good because it gives you a, a, a tangible notion that, okay, even when you're caught in self-clinging or really in a spiral of anxiety, and you're telling all these stories about whatever, how awful you are, or how you failed at work or in a relationship, or, you know, the, those dark moments that how do you flip that into, well, this too is, the oneness or this too is the divine and it's if you if you see that thought process as a wave it's a spiraling wave Mm. what is its essence its essence is always water and so there's this energy that you're caught in you know and you can kind of be resisting it but just like getting caught in a wave if you resist it you run out of air you're fighting, you're it's much worse, but if you kind of just let go, the wave passes by, and you end up saving your energy, and then you come up and then you' just it's just water again and so and it was always water mm. to begin with and so yeah, it's a tangible metaphor to work with, and because you know reality is actually the little Legos do move as particles and waves, you know as we're learning now from particle physics, I think. There's something there as well in that this theme of waves uh, is some part of us deep down, like knows experientially, (laughs) you know, how that works. And so you trigger this sort of meta um, picture of the sea and, and, and people get it. It's like they're like, oh, yeah, this emotion is coming through like a wave, but I'm the sea. I don't have to identify with this wave and say, oh, this is me. This is, you know, uh, this is why I'm, you know, failing again. It's like, no, that's just that's just a passing energy. And 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 when you look at when you're the ocean, it's like it doesn't matter if it's a tsunami. You know, it's like you can handle that. It's (laughs) like a blip, you know. So
0: how about. Yeah. One of the uh, give us an example of one of those waves that you engaged with there's a couple that were a little bit like wow like that one you fell off like a house literal waves
1: (laughs) the literal waves yeah ocean waves yeah uh there's a couple stories i mean in the book where uh one of them i'm in bali and uh I've basically just gotten out of graduate school where I then come and get, get a job. And I'm thinking, I got a a magazine writing job. I got a girlfriend. I'm working in a city. Like maybe this is life. I'm an adult now. And then a year goes by and I'm like, Oh shit, is this all life is about? (laughs) You know, it's like my, I'm in the nine to five and practice is just kind of keeping my head above water. But, uh, so I go to Bali to reflect and think about, you know, what I'm really doing. And they, I meet this guy, Jimmy, who's uh, an incredible surfer and also a, a sort of a yogi in his own right. And he, his spiritual awakening, if you will, came when he was uh, surfing an outer atoll in Indonesia and he got a cerebral malaria coma. And months later, Whoa. he woke up from the coma, had to relearn how to walk and talk all over again. Hmm. And so, anyway, we're, we're out surfing at this break called Impossibles, which is a, a difficult wave. <laughs> yeah. um, and he surfs it beautifully. And I'm, the reefs in Indonesia are very dangerous. because You fall and you, you get tumbled on these bacteria-ridden, razor-sharp reefs. So I'm watching Jimmy and... He's about 30 years older than me. He says, let's go surf this way, Padang Padang, where it's even more, much more dangerous. And I basically vowed that I'm not going to surf out there on this trip because it's, I've heard stories and I don't want to go home. You know, that's not the, the lesson I'm looking for. Mm. But we go over and on the way, I ask him, it comes up in passing, about the coma and he says because he says oh it looks like where look padang looks like where i got bitten by the mosquito that gave him cerebral malaria so i asked him about the the, what he experienced in the coma and and he never told me the story and it turns out that he had this near-death experience basically where he he was i i won't go into the whole story because it's a bit long but he he was consumed in bliss and and he woke up from the coma after that dream saying, San Sebastian, San Sebastian, I saw an angel. And the, it turns out there were very various coincidences about the San Sebastian story that he tells me. So anyway, hearing this story, it's like all of a sudden it turns on all your spiritual switches and you're like, oh yeah, you know, I don't have to be in this mindset of like, Trying to figure it all out, trying to, you know, what about just being, and what about faith, and uh, and so I decide, you know, he's kind of turned me on, and, and and I say, okay, I'm gonna surf this scary wave, and basically, you know, everything in me is is clamming up, I'm, I have all that adrenaline, and and uh, and yet this huge set, massive, you know, probably two or three times my height comes and and I think just being again it's like being with somebody like Jimmy uh who's reflecting a certain amount of fearlessness mm. I just find myself going and uh this is one of these waves that's famous for being hollow and and where you get into the there's really no way to make it out of the wave without being inside the wave uh, in the tube. So I zoom down this, barely make it to my feet, you know, I'm airborne, make it down to the bottom of this wave. And it does something that I've just never seen a wave look anything like this. It's like, uh, there I am. And it looks like there's just a, a blue tunnel falling from space you know that's Mm -hmm. about to encase me and there's nowhere you can go it's reef two feet below you and so everything in you is saying leap off but if you leap off (laughs) you're leaping onto the reef and so I just stay there and and you know it's only a few seconds that you're in the wave in this tunnel Uh, but it feels like time just stops in there And so I won't give away the whole story, but you know, I, (laughs) there I am. And, uh, and I make it just about to the end of that wave. And, um, and you know, all this indecision that I'm in about, you know, what kind of life I want to live. It's like that, those few seconds of infinity in the tube and then the subsequent smashing onto the reef. Help me help me find a little answer. And I, I've always found that in life that you know you you sort of when you're in those moments of indecision you can't control it. You can't be the controller and say, All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna figure this out and I'm gonna lock down and you know and and I'll find the answer. You know, it's more it's much more of a surrendering and it's the same when you're in a mm. You have to be shaken out of your desire to control. And that's really what the wave was doing for me because you can't control. And you, I think to an extent, that's why surfers put ourselves and people and athletes, we put ourselves in those situations to be reminded, you know, ultimately that, you know, you can't try to control everything. Yeah,
0: right. We used to have a mentor, Krishnadas and I, who's passed uh, some time back, but, uh, he was uh, there was a comic strip back in the 60s called Mr. Natural, who he was like the, the guru for the hippies and so on. He was just totally present all the time. And this this man named K. C. Tuari used to say to us, if you think you're doing it, my boy, you are lost <laughs> every day. So like that. yeah that is so true. So one uh, we're coming to the end but Jamal but one thing um as I started this whole conversation with you out around Haridas baba and, and the relationship to Neem Karoli baba and us and so on so and you you're going to India you're on your on that classical journey to the east which we did as well. And and in fact, you even found Vipassana, which was a big thing for us too. That's, yeah. you know, I told you the story of the bus. That's where they were, the Vipassana course and Bodh Gaya. Um So the, there's a lot, of, that's why this was one of the reasons that it was really um, uh, wonderful for me to read uh, and relate to, wow, fast forward from then, you know, 40 years, 45 years, and the same thing is really going on. Mm-hmm. and And you're being taken into the same places that we've been talking about in terms of of letting go in terms of allowing uh, pain and suffering to be alongside of uh, happiness, bliss, et cetera. Uh, so uh, the other parallel, if you would call it in the book, is Robert Thurman, who is a good friend to to us, and uh, certainly. Uh, many of the uh teachers on the be here now network sharon salzberg and christian Nusser, you know very close to uh, to bob mm-hmm. and and he's such a great being he he we would see him pass us by when we were in with neem karoli baba in the foothills of the himalayas he would stop you know, almost in wave kind of a deal it's just uh, so it's it's really a, a very connective thing and he is a, a brilliant guy and uh so when I got to this, I guess you pulled some of this stuff that approximated being in in talks with him and so on and so forth. I, I think that that's what you said in the book. Yeah, um,
1: that's yeah. I wanted to get him right because cause Bob speaks in in long uh, monologues and it's he's very exacting and and I knew that I couldn't remember exactly. His words, and so I pulled some quotes from his books. Mm. But I mean, he speaks very much like he writes, so it's yeah. uh, not far off.
0: Yeah, we just did a podcast together uh, recently, about a month and a half ago or something. Yeah, he's—you uh, could be with him for like hours. He can go on. I mean, and be—and <laughs> it's entertaining. It's not just informative and and such knowledge that he has, and and practicality too. He's just really wonderful but and I suppose you met him too uh, finally
1: yeah well he was uh I mean he was my professor and then he was also my uh my advisor Mm. while I was in Columbia so I would go into his office occasionally and usually it was about financing you know he would be helping me get some extra funding or something he was always very compassionate in that regard he would work for his students like crazy to get us a little money yeah, to be a day mm-hmm. at school, mm-hmm. um, but uh, yeah, any encounter with him was always kind of magical, just by virtue of who he is. You know, he's he's such an, he he's he's just such a one of a kind. He's got the glass eye and all the rings. And as a twenty-five-year-old in grad school, you have all these professors who kind of fit a type to some extent. I mean, you know, there's a lot of diversity at Columbia, but he's he doesn't fit any of it, you know, and you're just like, and I'd read some of his books, but again, I mean, in the book, I compare him to Vimalakirti, who's this uh, great Indian sage who lived at the time of the Buddha and was a layman who found, uh, you know, that the nature was, Everywhere. And he would go into casinos and go into Mm. uh, gambling houses and, and, and really everywhere, political parties. And he went in order to show that this, uh, this mind is possible anywhere. And, and Bob, I was reading that sutra, he's written an incredible translation of it. And, um, and then I met him. And it was like, he was taking all the madness of New York and spinning it into the mandala, you know, and just showing that, hey, it's all it's all right here. Yeah. And he, the way he laughs and the way he tells jokes and the way he brings politics into his lectures, uh, you just, you know, it, it's one of a kind. So I had to uh, – he's hard to capture on the page, so I used a lot of his yeah. own language.
0: Yeah, Uh, just there was one little passage that I love so much. I gotta, I gotta share it with you. Um, you Thurman says there's an extremely subtle body mind. This is the indestructible drop. I never heard that before in my whole life. Indestructible drop called the energy mind, indivisible of clear light transparency. It's like. (laughs) <laughs> Very hard to describe or understand, yes, Bob. And not to be misconstrued as a rigid, fixed identity, this subtlest, most essential state of an individual, you were talking about the core of what, who we are, is a being's deepest state of pure soul. Another non-Buddhist expression, yes. Bob, where the, where the being is intelligent light, alive and singular, Continuous yet changing, aware of its infinite interconnection with everything. It is beyond all instinct patterns of lust, aggression, or delusion, and makes the boundless process of reincarnation possible. That's fantastic, okay, Jamal? (laughs) Thanks for putting this in there. I mean, I haven't seen that before. It, Thurman says, this indestructible drop resided in the heart center, which totally connects to my tradition, our tradition of bhakti yoga, you know, through, through uh, Neem Karoli Baba and everything that we were given is exactly that, which it's all one circle. All of this stuff is yeah. just amazing. Oh, boy. Great book. See, all I- our...
1: Thank you, thank you. All Thanks Our for- Waves
0: Are Water, Stumbling Towards Enlightenment and the Perfect Ride. Jamal Yogis, also uh, author of Saltwater Buddha. We'll have to, uh, sometime in the nearer future, let's talk about Saltwater Buddha. And, well, actually, you know what? I was going to talk to you a little bit. See, time just flies here with all of this. Uh, your last book was about the the, uh, the fear project, right? Is that correct?
1: right. Yeah, that was more
0: of a scientific uh, yeah. base. Yeah. Neuros, neuroscience of fear and courage. I, I would have wanted to get into it. Maybe we can, we'll do it again. After you let's get off your again. book book tour, let's let's do that. Because these are the kinds of conversations that are the of the most interest to me. And, and of course, uh, I'm hoping with everybody we're sharing this with today. So, thank you, Jamal. Jamal, how do people get, do you have a website or Facebook group? People can be in touch with you?
1: I do. Uh, yeah, I'm in all the, the usual places, you know, Facebook, uh, Twitter, Instagram, um, and I announce, you know, I'm doing uh, doing a little bit of meditation teaching uh, mm. at like fourteen forty. In Santa Cruz this January, and so I have some retreats, and then I'm on the road for the book right now. So, yeah, probably Facebook is the easiest place to find me. I also have a website, JamalYogis.com.
0: J A I M A L Y O G I S. Could not believe J Ma Yogi. I mean, <laughs> derivative of okay, you can't go wrong. You're you're set, Jamal. Thank you for coming and sharing and uh definitely though i i'm i'm serious i want to get with you again and uh and and just have a little bit more chat uh around uh this last book that you did uh, but Likewise. yeah this is mind rolling and the be here now network go to be here now network.com and you can go to the page uh, where this podcast uh, resides, and we, of course, in the show notes, we'll put uh, links to the books and links to uh, Jamal, so you can all be in touch, and uh, and you, by the way, go buy the book through Amazon through our link, because then we get a few, uh, a little bit of a percentage that helps support what we're doing, and we know uh, everybody uh, has been great, and we want you to continue to To do that because um, so I can sit here and talk to people like Jamal, basically. Thank you again. And we'll see you next time on Mind Rolling.